Okay. Right. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Okay, so yes, we are doing the second half of August 1964 in this episode. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at Strange Tales number 123. So we continue with the ascension of Doctor Strange to being an equal partner on this book, where the cover is at this point equally divided between Doctor Strange and the Human Torch. As Stanley is maybe realizing, the Human Torch is one of the lamest books he has, and Doctor Strange is one of the greatest books he has. Like, stop but, trying to make the solo human torch thing happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> stop trying to make fetch happen. So then exactly. we see on the cover, human torch is fighting the beetle who is brand new and introduced in this issue, but we get a big change to the human torch half of the book. So this is, we're about to have the final 12 issues. Believe it or not, we have 12 more issues of solo human torch stories, but it won't be solo human torch stories for the next 12 issues. We're going to have human torch and thing stories which is a good change that the yes. Human Torch never could sustain half the book by himself. And so now he is going to be sustaining half that book with the Thing, who is a character who is much better suited to having his own book and will have his own book much more often than Human Torch will in the history of Marvel Comics. And he is joining. And so we see on the cover that Human Torch, guest starring, but it's not really a guest star because he's now a permanent co-star, guest starring the one and only Thing in Loving Color. And then we see that Doctor Strange is fighting Loki and it says, and with Loki nearby, can Thor be far behind? So that will be a temporary guest star of Thor in Doctor Strange. So then... Well, who who is the penciler on this issue? Yes. So we've got written by Stan Lee, enough said, illustrated by Carl Burgos, who was the first to draw the torch way back in the golden age of comics, inked by Darlene Dick Ayers, lettered by Smile and Sam Rosen. So Carl Burgos is back, and he does a good job. This is a nicely penciled issue by Carl Burgos. Uh, uh, it's, it, it's uneven. Um, uh, there, there are, are, there's a couple of panels where, uh, I will definitely take issue with that, but, um, it, it does though have that sort of golden age feel. I mean, like in particular, the, uh, panel on the bottom right of page one, that just looks like a golden age comic, the golden age superhero comic panel. Yes. But so, you know, I'm going to zip through this issue. It is not yes. a great issue. Not very important. We do meet the Beatle, Abner Jenkins who would eventually become an interesting character when he is in Kurt Busiek's Thunderbolts comic. He would never be an interesting character before then. <laughs> Kurt Busiek clearly ended up in sort of a tricky position with that comic where he's like, oh, the Beatle has never been very interesting. I'll have him become a different hero and join this group of reformed villains that become heroes. And then somebody clearly told Kurt Busiek a little in the comic, like, you do realize that the Beatle was like killing a bunch of people in the 90s. And Busiek was like, wait, he was? What What are you talking about? It's like, yeah, they tried to revive all these old Spider-Man villains and as the deadly foes of Spider-Man, and they had them all suddenly killing people because it was the 90s. And then Busiek is like, oh, crap. All right. All right. Let me let me quickly rewrite this. So then that's the only time I heard Jenkins becomes interesting. The Beatle, big thing of characters not actually matching. The most noticeable part of the Beatle's costume is he's got three huge suction cups on each hand. And it's really weird to have three. Like, how is his? How are his five fingers fitting into these three suction cup arms? And then he's got those wings. He says, I've done it. I can fly. Not as fast nor as high as a bird, but enough to accomplish my purpose. Only by vastly increasing my strength did this become possible. No normal pair of arms could bear the great strain of manipulating these solid steel wings. <laughs> it's like, 
dude, it's called <laughs> material science. Look it up, you goon. <laughs> yes. Steel is anyway, heavy. So, yes, indeed it is. Well, he's very strong, so he can still fly. So then, <laughs> meanwhile, Johnny and Ben are on a double date with Alicia and Doris. They pull up to some sort of drive-in diner. The Beatle says, well, I know they're there, and so I will go ahead and rob it. So force them to fight me. And so then they, in fact, get in a big fight. They go all the way across town. Uh, eventually, the Beatle sort of disappears, and we do get to see Ben on his... Ben has his own motorcycle. I'll clam up that old rattle trap's okay. I just be like, use my new cycle. And we see him jetting around on a motorcycle, which looks kind of cool. And they think they've caught the Beatle, but suddenly they can't find him. Where'd they go? Well, at this point, Stanley, or Burgos, has been reading about beetles and finds out that beetles like to burrow underground. And it turns out the beetle has not actually escaped. He would merely burrow underground and waits until they're leaves and then comes back out. The fight then resumes, goes to the 1964 World's Fair, which continue to have fun with here in the Marvel Universe. They're fighting around the Unisphere. The beetle eventually decides, I'm going to try that trick again. I'm going to burrow underneath. But they have talked to Reed and found out that he probably burrowed the first time. They have figured out he's burrowing again. They go down and grab him and send him off to jail. I have skipped over most of this issue, but that is because it is a lame issue and I have no interest in it. A guy who was making fun of Torch and Thing before now wants their autograph, but the Torch burns up his autograph book and the Thing breaks his pen. That panel that you're, that you're describing there, that is that is in contention for the worst drawing of Ben Grimm that we've ever seen. I mean, that oh, is... I don't think so. <laughs> it's really... Oh, God, I, it's, it just looks horrible. There are words. I think it's I think it's got some character to it. I think it's sort of fun. It's a bizarre panel. We'll grant you that. It's also bizarre that they are, they are acting literally like high school bullies here at this point. We'll be glad to give you our autographs. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot my hand was still hot. Looks like I burned your autograph book. And then things <laughs> like, mm, clumsy old me, I accidentally burned busted your new fountain pen i'm all shook up about it pal it's just like dude this is you you're the heroes right uh, okay whatever so then they all the double taters then all walk off and we have interesting two guys are watching them go and one says there go the greatest guys in the world carl and the other one says oh you're just prejudiced stan so clearly this is supposed to be stanley and carl burgos but stan is bald which yes. is fascinating to me like Stan, I guess, is he, like, the whole time Stan was doing all his cameos in the Marvel Universe, was he wearing a toupee? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, he was wearing a toupee. He wore a toupee through, like, the 70s and 80s. Like, I think it was around 66 or so that he started wearing a toupee and growing out his facial hair. And then I think he wore a toupee all the way up through the period when we were reading. I think I have read that he got hair implants later. Ah. Well, this is a rare glimpse of bald Stan in a comic book. If you see pictures of Stan in the early 60s, it's like he's aging backwards as you go <laughs> forward in time. And I, you know, <laughs> I kind of get the feeling that maybe that's one of the things that started turning Jack Kirby into just being like, why am I working with this clown? <laughs> like, yeah. I know what you look like. And now you're sitting here trying to look like this Hollywood star kind of thing. Like, give me a break. Yeah, that's it. That's uh, that's this issue. I don't hate his thing as much as you hate Burgos's thing, but this is certainly not a well-plotted or penciled issue. The Beatles certainly doesn't seem like he's going to be a villain who has any lasting power to him, but 
for some reason or another, he sticks around and around and around until finally Kurt Busiek finds a good way to use him in Thunderbolts a very long 35 years later. Anyway, all right, so let's go and go back to the second half of the book. So the second half of the book, we get a great tragedy. We get a horrifying (laughs) glimpse into what could have been because we get written by Stan Miracleman Lee, illustrated by Steve Marvelman Dicko, inked by George Mystical Man Bell, lettered by Art Magical Man Simek. So as soon as I, as soon as I read those credits, I was like, "Oh, Matt is gonna be pissed." <laughs> so we have Steve Dicko not inking himself, and I have always said that when George Bell was inking Kirby, I was like. George Bell by Kirby is not only bad inks, it's bad pencils. Like, Kirby looks like a bad penciler when inked by George Bell. This is true to a certain extent of Ditko as well, that this issue is not only poorly inked by George Bell, but the pencils don't look very good. And this would be a consistent problem with Ditko in the 80s by the time we were reading comics, where, like, even just something about Ditko's famously splayed fingers, when he inks them, they look fine. And then as soon as anybody else inks Ditko's splayed fingers... They look so dumb. They look so (laughs) awkward. And you can see this all right here on the page one of this story where we get a sort of one page summary of the story where Doctor Strange's flying mystical hand has grabbed Thor's hammer out of his hand and Thor's fingers are splayed out in a way that just does not look appealing to me. So anyway, so I will I will also point out with the whole uh, credits, Miracle Man and Marvel Man, both by coincidence, are names that a British superhero has been known by through the years. He was known as Marvel Man originally in Britain, but then when they were printing them in the U.S., obviously Marvel had a trademark on that term, so they renamed it Miracle Man. We got to exchange sitting around. He is learning the art of levitation without using his cloak of levitation yet. So he's trying to learn how to levitate a little bit. We see Loki, who is in prison in Asgard, but he has a pretty luxuriously appointed prison cell here. He's uh, (laughs) able to get up to all sorts of mischief in his prison. It's funny, Dicko is a little bit off model on Thor, but he's on model on Loki. Dicko does great Loki, but not so much with Thor. And he gives Odin a decent hat. Yeah, that's a pretty good hat. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm good for you, Dicko. You're like, okay, if there's one thing I'm actually going to study some Kirby Thor comics. I've noticed he gives Odin spectacular hats. So I got to live up to this high expectations. And he does a pretty good job. So Loki appears to Dr. Strange, says, I was shackled by this evil guy named Thor. And Dr. Strange's like, I've heard of Thor. He's not evil. It's like, no, 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 completely evil. You have no idea. You're, you're misinformed. You've got to go ahead and steal his hammer. I'm going to give you a little piece of the thong of Thor's hammer. I'm going to give it to you and have you send a big flying magical gauntlet around to grab Thor's hammer away from him. And Doctor Strange is like, okay, if you say so. He does this, and very quickly then Doctor Strange realizes, wait just a second, the evil aura wasn't coming from the hammer, it's coming from you. And then they get a big magical fight. That goes on for several pages. Eventually, (laughs) and this is apparently this fight, which goes on for several pages, is actually happening lightning fast, because... After fighting him for several pages, he's like, I shouldn't have stolen Thor's hammer. And he returns Thor's hammer. And Thor, this whole time, has been falling, I guess. And <laughs> then yeah. I will return it to him in time for it to him to catch it, or rather it to catch him before he falls all the way to the ground. Then, Well, and I, I will say that Stan Lee saw that this made no sense as well. The second to last panel on page seven, it says, and time spins back, back, ah. back until before Thor's fall is finished. Yes. 
which just brings up more questions than answers. But <laughs> at least Stanley is pointing out, uh, Steve, this makes no sense. Uh, clearly, he would have fallen to the ground a long time ago. Anyway, so then uh, we get a nice little callback where Dr. Strange is like, I'm going to send you to the purple dimension where I was dealing with before. Thor, meanwhile, is like, um, something weird just happened. Big metal magical gauntlet Soma hammer away. I think this all has something to do with Dr. Strange. I'm going to head over to Dr. Strange's place. Loki sees that Thor is coming, gives up, goes home. Thor then, strangely enough, does not enter Dr. Strange's place. He just zooms right by it, having sense that the whatever evil was going on is now done with. And I got to say, truly terrible panel of Thor on page nine. Yeah. Third panel of page nine. You were a professional comic book anchor. You understand more <laughs> than most do that the number one job of any comic book penciler, but even more so any comic book anchor, is to make the two eyes look like they belong in the same head. <laughs> and it is, I mean, it's something you got to do time and time and time and time again in each issue. And yeah, in certain situations, you got a small little head and it's like, eh, you might not quite be able to get it in the right place. It may look a little wall-eyed, but it's something, a small character in the background. But yeah, no, with this one here, if I'd done that, I'd be like, okay, I got to wipe that out and do that over again. <laughs> and also just the bags under his eyes, yeah. <laughs> the crow's feet. <laughs> he just looks like he's a, you know, 50-year-old, uh, oh, wait, I'm 50 years old. Uh, let's say 60-year-old <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. Yes, obviously an issue that is an absolute horror show in terms of DeVille doing the inking, but a perfectly fine issue, a fun little story, fun to mix up characters that haven't been mixed up before. Loki and Doctor Strange make good natural antagonists. Very odd not to just go ahead and have Thor and Doctor Strange get hang out a little bit, but a perfectly fine story, just an excuse to have Doctor Strange and a magic dude shooting, shooting spells at each other for a couple of ages, which Dicko, as always, throws the hell out of, even though he is being betrayed by his inker. Yes. Okay, so let's move on to Tales of Suspense featuring the power of Iron Man. They're now more than willing to acknowledge the existence of Doctor Strange on the covers of Strange Tales. They never admit to their dirty secret of Uatu stories on the cover of <laughs> Tales of Suspense. No, no. Well, that's because he just must stand there and watch. We are going to be introduced to the Unicorn, uh, who will go on to be one of Iron Man's ongoing villains, at least through the 80s. Kind of lame looking here. Uh, doesn't even really look much like a unicorn, but sure, why not? The unicorn. No, he doesn't even have a horn. He's, he's Later, they will redesign his outfit so that he's got like, yes, he's still got a big laser that comes out of his head, but it sticks out of a little horn like a unicorn. No, and this one, not so much. This issue starts out with uh, Tony Stark as Iron Man throwing a fit because he's sick and tired of having to wear his life-saving chest device and sick and tired of all the responsibilities of being Iron Man. So he's just like, you know what? I'm just going to look out for number one from now on. No more Iron Man. Well, that doesn't really explain what's going to be going on with his heart when he does this. You know, it's like, are you going to stop wearing that thing? Because that was part of your complaint. But uh, we don't really get into that because this doesn't last that long. Then when he finally comes out as Tony Stark, Stark asks Pepper to bring him his little black book, has Happy bring out his sports car, and uh, but won't let him drive the sports car. He's going to drive it himself. He just wants it brought around. And so he's treating them like trash. The Avengers call up and they're looking for Iron Man. Pepper says, let me go get Mr. Stark. He should know where he is since he's his bodyguard. And then Stark says, I heard that, Pepper. Tell them I sent Iron Man away for a vacation. A long vacation. But Mr. Stark, what if he's needed? Sorry, girl. 
everyone needs a vacation, even old Shellhead. So he's just blowing off all of his responsibilities. So Tony is out at a nightclub with uh, some beautiful woman. He's putting the moves on Which, her. Which, again, suddenly, heck, is a good penciler. You know, we've got Tony at a nightclub romancing somebody, a beautifully penciled panel. That is the yes. only beautifully penciled panel in this entire issue. Yes, yes. And we're, we unfortunately are getting less and less of that sort of stuff as we go through this series. Yeah. Uh, so then we see one of Stark's facilities. I guess this is his main one. We see uh, in Stark's main facility, the unicorn shows up and he is using his unicorn horn, which shoots out some kind of power blast. Happy just rolls up his sleeves a little. Well, it seems to be rolling up his sleeves, but they don't look rolled up in the next panel. But uh, he goes out and being the former prize fighter that he was, goes out and tries to just grab the unicorn and just fight him, you know, just as a man to man kind of thing. Even though the unicorn, who is a Soviet spy, by the way, we haven't mentioned that yet. Yeah. So instead of just saying, oh, I'm going to wreck America's defense capabilities by taking down this factory, He's like, no, I must prove myself by taking down Iron Man. That will prove how great and strong and powerful I am. So he kidnaps Pepper Potts because, of course, that's how these things always work. Meanwhile, Happy is really hurt after being thrown by the unicorn. So he ends well, up. Well, he, uh, he didn't just get thrown, he got shot with the laser. So he gets nailed oh, with right. the laser on top of page eight. Yes. Uh, I was just thinking, though, that the way he gets tossed on page seven, that should already <laughs> require an yeah. ambulance at that point. But uh, yes, you're right. He gets shot by the uh, the power horn. So they end up having to take Happy to the hospital in a uh, in the Wii U wagon uh, <laughs> in an ambulance. Um, and then so they're trying to locate Stark all over the place. And uh, they're just calling nightclub after nightclub to see if he's there. So then he is in this one, they bring him a phone, and then he's like, uh, he just tells the lady he's on the date with, uh, call yourself a cab, I've got things to do. And this is a sign that he is no longer being a jerk. Like, he was being a jerk before, and now he is chastened and guilty and, you know, is ready to become a better person. And the way he shows he is ready to become a better person is he says, call yourself a cab, I've got things to do. Well, I mean, you know, that's how you're supposed to treat a floozy. Yeah. Right? Yes. Oh, of course. Hello. Yes. <laughs> is this thing on? Is this uh? <laughs> All right. Um. Okay. He gets in his uh, sports car. I always like that sort of '60s coupe with it's like all hood. You know that that's always a great look uh, on cars. If you know, I'm generally not a car guy, but if I did get filthy rich one day, that might be the kind of thing I might indulge in. Dark shows up. He's saying, "See that he gets whatever he needs. Money is no object. He must have the best of everything." And the doctor says, "Mr. Stark." We give all our patients the best care. Each life is important to us. Your money can't help him now. Like, aw. Anyway, so. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's nice. Uh, That's that's nice. Tony Stark then leaves thinking, feeling how powerless he is and feeling guilty about how he had treated them and how this is partially his fault because he wasn't there. Tony Stark then gets out his Iron Man armor, puts it back on. Right. So we get to see him assembling the whole thing there. And then he's got this weird thing where on his little chest, he clips this little extra thing onto his chest circle thing. Uh, where in the movies, that's where the actual device is that's protecting his heart. But he puts this thing on and it says, I've still got a chance if the molecules in the air through which the unicorn has passed 
have not yet completely blown away. And then he says, no, the trail is crystal clear, almost too clear, as though he wants to be found. Yes, an experimental black light tracer can follow a trail of molecules that someone left behind. It's rather yes. And, and how the how the unicorn would have left more molecules to make the <laughs> <laughs> to make it stand out more seems a, a, a little a question a question that is unanswered. It is ineffable. So uh, Iron Man then uh, breaks into the safe house where Unicorn is holding Pepper. The unicorn, you know, they have a big fight. Iron Man then escapes with Pepper, and but then we find out that the unicorn can also fly so he's following them the unicorn meanwhile is going back and doing what he probably should have done from the beginning which is just sabotage (laughs) stark's factory so he puts a whole bunch of tnt in a location a secret location in the factory and then tells iron man yes your factory is set to be demolished at midnight uh surrender and let me take you behind the iron curtain as my prisoner or else see your life's work go up in flames. The unicorn just obviously knows he is Tony Stark. Like the Tony, the unicorn is like, okay, your factory, which you built is going to be destroyed and your secretary, Pepper Potts will be killed. And it's like, whoa, okay, whoa. Has everybody, <laughs> has everybody been able to figure this out? Like, and Tony Stark is not at all phased by the fact that the unicorn is, is it's very clear that the unicorn knows who he is. It's, it's, it's like Johnny Storm in those first five or so <laughs> yeah. issues of his Strange Tales stories. Uh, and it's everyone's like, yeah, we kind of got the impression that you didn't want to talk about it. So we just decided to leave you alone. You know, just uh, uh, yeah, something like that. So <laughs> they're having a fight. But then Iron Man realizes that he's not going to be able to force the unicorn to tell him where the dynamite is. So then he finally does surrender to the unicorn uh, and but- say that he will get on well he says he will get on the plane with him to moscow but once again he's like the 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 heroes in these books are very much like uh rumpelstiltskin or something like that you know it's like ah but you didn't hear this you know it's like making a deal with the devil kind of thing you know that's the second time this month we already had this happen in fantastic four this month which we covered in our previous episode and now the same month we've got iron man going ah says you're right unicorn I promised that I'd let you take me on a plane bound for your homeland. And as you see, I've kept my promise, but I didn't say what I do after I entered the plane. Like, okay, clearly, if you're going to make a deal to have a Marvel hero surrender to you, get a lawyer on that. <laughs> get a lawyer. <laughs> draw, draw up an ironclad contract that covers all of the eventualities. <laughs> Yes, indeed. But then, uh, so then when when Iron Man says that, then the unicorn responds, bah, what can you do now? It's like, dude, I'm Iron Man. What do you think? So then he starts breaking out the windows in the plane and just punctures all of them and they have to return down to ground level. Um, Iron Man rips off both of the engines, I guess. Yeah, he rips off both of the engines on the plane. And so then it plummets and the people on the plane have to take parachutes out. Um, but he doesn't see a parachute for the unicorn. So he figures, oh, he must have fallen to his death or maybe he did something else. But he once again doesn't know yet that the unicorn can fly. At this point, Tony Stark heads back to see Happy in the hospital. He is um, all wrapped up in bandages. Looks like he's broken a lot of bones in his body. And he is uh, healing. Uh, we then see a little bit more of the budding romance between Pepper and Happy. 
this is starting to become a genuine love triangle at this point. And as you have pointed out, eventually Pepper ends up marrying Happy. Anyway, yeah, that's it. It's, yeah, it's a pretty lame villain. Yeah, no, it's very much an autopilot, another Soviet coming to America, wrecking his factories. The only interesting thing about this issue is just, you know, the degree to which Tony Stark is freaking out at the beginning about getting sick and tired of the whole thing, which, you know, is a nice little character note for him of, you know, showing him as being a little more tortured than we're used to seeing him. But this is an entirely lame autopilot issue that is best forgotten. So then, meanwhile, we're going to move on to Tales of the Watcher. It's the Watcher's sacrifice. The Watcher ends up, is looking at this particular thing out in space that's interesting, but then he goes and says, oh, there's a disturbance from a nearby planet. I'm going to go ahead and have like an astral projection to go there. And there's a planet where there's a battle between barbarians and a civilized people. And they very much look like French gendarmes fighting what, Mongol warriors or something like that? There is a queen who is very beautiful, very blonde, uh, who is just standing there statuesquely encouraging her warriors, just being their moral support. Watu immediately falls in love with her, says this has never happened before, but I am now in love. Watu sees that her kingdom is about to be dissolved by these barbarians. He cannot act so-called, but he can go where he wants. So he places himself in between the barbarian who's about to kill the queen uh, and her. Uh, The barbarians run off. She sees him and immediately falls in love with him and asks him to stay there and rule by her side. He's just like, I can't do that. So he decides to be mean to her. It's like the old uh, you know, we can't keep the dog, but we don't want, you know, <laughs> so we just go out and say and be mean to it and say, go get away. We don't like you anymore uh, because that's better for the dog in the end. So yes, that's basically what is, he's doing here. The logic makes no sense. He's like, I I know now that I truly love you, but I dare not reveal it. He's thinking to himself, for the Watcher can never marry. He must forever roam the universe. And if you knew of my love, it would make my departure even more painful for you. So instead, he suddenly starts just saying horrible things to her. And then he thinks to himself, forgive me, I had to be cruel to make you hate me, to spare you a greater pain. Like, no, that's not how this works at all, Watcher. Like, inflicting pain inflicts pain. Like you, like saying like, oh, hey, sorry, baby, I'm in love with the sea. You know, like that would have been fine, you know, instead of trying to make it as painful as possible because it would have been more painful if it wasn't painful. Like that logic makes no sense. Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, you know, he did say he's never been in love before. So it's not yeah. like he's got a lot of experience with this. He's like, uh, I don't know, well, I heard this song once that goes cruel to be kind. So uh, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe that's what I need to do. Anyway, yeah, it's um not the best of the Watu stories. I've I've liked um a lot of them and more of the interrogation of uh his parameters better in some of the other issues. It's fine, but these will be going away shortly when uh Captain America comes to share this book with Iron Man. I think this is a fascinating story. I certainly never thought I'd get to see Watu fall in love. You know, it's funny, she's so She's such a sort of blonde ice queen sort of that she looks like that I was sure she would turn out to be evil. She kind mm-hmm. of looks like the evil Bond queen. But uh, instead, no, she's perfectly good. Um, she really was. You know, I, I expected like her troops to suddenly massacre the Mongols or do something like that. But uh, and then the watcher realized like, oh, you know, I've learned that sometimes you fall in love with someone who turns out not to be a good person. But no, it's just a matter of him realizing that she is perfectly nice, but he just can't marry her because he's in love with the sea because he's got to he's got to do his job. But 
you know, I got to say, like, Watcher, you're basic. You're just basic. <laughs> like, this is, you know, your taste in women, like, given that you've, you've, you've seen, you've been all over all of creation, you've been all over every planet in the universe, and you've seen all of the women everywhere, and you're going to fall in love with this just generic blonde babe? Like, come on, man. Like, you should have more sophisticated <laughs> tastes than this. But uh, but I like the idea of him falling in love. It's fun to see Watu get to show all these different flavors of himself that we've never got to see him show again before or since. I like it. I like having an Watu in love story. You said that you've been watching, uh, you've been rewatching The Good Place with your kids recently, right? I'm yes, we that's recently where the, finished. I'm guessing that's where the you basic just came <laughs> from right there. <laughs> <laughs> indeed indeed all right so let's go ahead and move on to the next book we've got here tales to astonish tales to astonish number 58 giant man faces the most powerful foe of all in the coming of colossus still no it oh no that's not true i was about to say they don't admit they have backups here either but they do also in this fast moving issue a new feature-length wasp thriller written by stanley penciled by dick Ayers, inked by paul reinman i've said this in the past that Ayers, I think, is a good penciler, and Reinman is a great inker, but they are not good together. They are not turned yes. out good art here. At their lab, Hank and Chan, Chan wants to go on a vacation to Lake Placid. He is saying, like, uh, yeah, I've got more interesting things to do. So finally, we get to a big turning point that this book has needed to get to for a long time. So you recall when the book started, he had to douse himself in a big wet chemical to change size. Then they realized that didn't make any sense. Then they had a gas, which made a certain amount of sense. You shot out a gas that would make you grow or shrink. Then they changed that to pills, which was very strange. And they had them just constantly popping pills in order to grow and shrink. Now, he finally is like, I'm just going to have little cybernetic impulses in my helmet that cause me to grow and shrink, which is how it will be from this point on, which is great. And then Wasp says, oh, are you going to do that for me? And he's like, no, I'm just going to control your shrinking and growing from now on with my helmet. <laughs> and she's like, wait, what? <laughs> and your checking account. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Women can't be trusted with their own credit cards and they can't be trusted with their own shrinking and growing power. So yes, so then Captain America stops by and he says, hey guys, in Central Equatorial Africa, specifically in the Bora Buru region, B-O-R-A-B-U-R-U region. Now, this is not actually a region of Africa. There is an Indonesian island called Bora Bora, but no Bora Boru region of Africa, where there is someone who is standing on a plateau. He is a giant. He is ruling over the natives, and he is demanding that they make human sacrifices to him. And he says, I'm Captain America. I can't be bothered to deal with this myself. You go deal with it, giant man. And so giant man was going to deal with it. So and 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 I'll point out that Captain America. Well, a this is a you know skyscraper we've we've determined that they're in. So exactly how Captain America got in that window, we're not sure. B this is presumably the lab of Doctor Henry Pym. And yes. <laughs> anyway, never mind. Let's go. <laughs> never mind. So then they go to Africa. Uh, the Colossus attacks their ship. They have to parachute out. <laughs> They say, okay, we're just going to have to climb up the mesa to get to him. And they're like, well, we better shrink down to ant size first and use our insect powers to climb up the cliff. Like, that's not your type of insect powers. <laughs> you, don't have, <laughs> you don't have stickiness powers. It says now with our insect powers, it's an easy matter to dash up the side of the peak. It shouldn't be more than a couple of hours if we don't stop. Like, actually, wouldn't it have been easier to climb up the side if you were just fully sized? 
and you don't have sticky powers, what are you talking about? You probably should, because insects can climb up walls, but you guys have never shown that ability in the past. So then they get up there, they get in fights with people. He is using his newfound powers a lot to shrink and grow a lot. She is finally using her wasp sting, her air gun on her hand in all sorts of clever ways to help defeat the guy, which is very good to see her being good in a fight. And we complain a lot about art mistakes in these issues, but it's very, very rare that we get a panel where I just have absolutely no idea what's going on. And <laughs> we got a rare one of those panels here. I eventually did figure it out, but on page 11 in the upper right-hand corner, there is a scene where I can, I'm like, is that a toenail? What exactly is going on here? I eventually figured out this is one of his horns sticking out from his hairline, but the hair does not look anything like hair. But it was very, very unclear from looking at the panel what was going on, which only highlights the fact that usually that does not happen in Marvel Comics. So yes. then eventually they have Giant Man punch the guy, but then the wasp is on Giant Man's fist shooting her air gun at him while Giant Man is punching him, which is putting her in quite a bit of danger. But he then feels himself be knocked back by what should have been a normal fist blow. And it's like, oh my God, he must have like super punchy fists. I don't think we should invade this planet. So then he goes ahead and gets on his alien ship and radios home to his alien people. Earth creatures can change size and vanish completely at will. Also have the power to knock a foe off his feet merely by pointing at him. Too dangerous to visit again. That is all. And they leave. And then the grateful African natives build a huge statue of Giant Man on the Mesa from that point on in the Bora Buru region. And then they announce, big change in next issue, the Incredible Hulk will appear. And that will in fact be, it will turn out the Incredible Hulk is here to stay. But we will see that next issue. Hank is really pretty mean to Jan in a lot of his dialogue in here. Oh, yeah. On page seven, Hank says, what is it, Hank? I never saw it before. Hank says, naturally, you're too busy reading travel magazines while your hardworking partner in peril slaves over his hot test tubes. And we that's one of all the like three or four different comments like that that we get in this issue. And it's just like, that's, that's not attractive. <laughs> yeah. Hank's jerk to Jan. I didn't mention that because I considered it to be beneath my notice because it is so common. Anyway, we have a quick backup with the wonderful wasp. Hank calls her up and says, oh, the magician is loose. You've got to hide in my lab in case he comes after us. And she's like, I don't want to do that. I want to go to the department store where they've got a bunch of fashions based on my costumes. And I don't care if the magician does attack me. Sure enough, the magician does attack her, and she just cleans the floor with him. She has a lot of fun. He does something that no villain has ever done in any of these comics so far. He's like, I'm going to be fighting somebody tiny. I'm going to put on magnifying glasses, opto-ray magnifying glasses to help me fight the person. And then quickly finds, like, he's trying to then swat her, and he's like, I keep missing. It's these blasted glasses. Their magnification throws my sense of timing off. It's like, yeah, it's uh, ultimately not worth doing, dude. So then uh, she then gets his cape stuck in an escalator, which is a fun way to defeat a bad guy. And no then capes. orders, <laughs> no capes, uses a toy robot to tie him up as he is stuck in the escalator. That is a sophisticated toy robot for 1964. <laughs> I mean, that would be a sophisticated toy robot now. <laughs> yes, given our AI robots of today, probably couldn't do that. So then uh, she then gets home and... Hank has not heard the news, and he says, I was worried, honey, but at last you're here, where I know you'll be safe until the magician is captured. She thinks, that means he hasn't heard the news yet, and then he says, I was worried too, but now that you're here, Hank, that's it, darling, hold me tight. I love being in your arms. They're so strong, so capable, and I'll always need them to protect weak little me, and then she turns to us and she winks. So uh, 
nice story getting the Wasp to be a confident, badass superheroine that we want her to be, easily take care of Magician who gave Giant Man so much trouble in an earlier issue. This is a fun story, by far the best story in this issue. I uh, like the story a lot more than I like the Giant Man in Africa storyline. The Giant Man issue really felt like uh, Marvel 1962 to me, Um, and uh, not in a good way. Uh, well, although I will point out also that when she drops into the model car, uh, there are apparently controls in there for a tiny person <laughs> to go ahead and start the car up, which is always entertaining. But yeah, that's totally right out of uh, the MN movie, or rather the MN movie was right out of this, where uh, you know they've got a little car track that she then takes advantage of while she's tiny, which they had a lot of fun with in the first MN MCU movie. All right, so let's move on to our final book of this month. So the Avengers now monthly. So the Avengers has been bi-monthly until this point. So we would have this would have been an off week for the Avengers, but suddenly it's not the X Men. The X Men has not gone monthly, but the X but the Avengers has. So we have an Avengers a mere one month after our previous Avengers. Yes. So uh, the previous issue we had the Masters of Evil. This issue uh, we have Baron Zemo instead pairing up with the Executioner, and the Enchantress. And it's an interesting uh, combo. So, so we let's st- talk about this cover, Steve. Oh. <laughs> so what you, the hell's going on on this cover? I, You know, once again, lots of times with things like this, I just see it as it's, it's like medieval iconography. Once again, the largest figure is not the one closest to you. It's the most important thing that you're supposed to look at. Let's try to describe this cover to people who are not looking at it. So we've got Thor fighting the Avengers, which is always fun when the heroes fight each other. And then underneath Thor, we've got Zemo, the Enchantress, and the Executioner all making conjure fingers while pointing at him, but they're all underneath Thor's feet. The Avengers seemingly can't see them. They seemingly can't see the Avengers. It is the most... but. Go to secretsofstory.com and look at this cover. It is a bizarre cover. It is very hard to figure out who is where or what is going on. Or for that matter, why Zemo and the Executioner seem to think they also have the ability to do enchanting powers <laughs> at Thor. Well, and also it, it is weird that Thor is facing away from the viewer mm-hmm. when he's the biggest figure on that thing. But yeah, it, it's it's weird, but it's something where I was just like, eh, you know, whatever. It's just Kirby showing all the characters in dynamic motion of one way or another. It doesn't really matter what they're doing. <laughs> right. So uh, we start out with the Avengers interrogating Iron Man about why he didn't answer their phone call in this month's issue of Iron Man. Yes. He says that he can't say, but, you know, he will accept whatever punishment they hand down. As it turns out, the punishment is basically you are banned for a week. Yeah. So, yeah, terrible. Then we switch to Asgard, where we see Odin with a fabulous hat. And he is banishing the Executioner and the Enchantress from Asgard for their crimes in a previous issue. But he banishes them to Earth, which just seems like a really, really odd thing to do. (laughs) Yes, I think you guys went to Earth and caused all this trouble, so therefore you are banished to Earth. And it's like, well, that was the whole problem. Like, like, going to Earth is the whole thing you're punishing them for. It's like punishing someone for skipping school by suspending them from school. So, yes. 
I love the panel where the executioner is stripped of his helmet and axe, both of which I think Kirby realized like, yeah, that's an ugly looking helmet. He's a much cooler character without the helmet. And it doesn't really make sense for him to be carrying around an axe, which he's never allowed to use because we can't use blood in the comics. But we have just an awesome panel of these drummers drumming, you know, clearly you, you can just hear this panel as these drummers are drum beating, you know, what do they say in the armory? He's been drum beated out of the army or whatever, where he's being uh, yeah. drum Drum-d- out to of- drummed, at, drummed out. Yeah. He's right. getting literally drummed out of the Asgardian military here and uh, while Odin is ordering the whole thing on. It's a really gorgeous panel, gorgeous linked by Chickstone. Um, I've got to say, when I was reading this myself, um, one thing that struck me was that his head is does not seem to be correctly attached to his body. Um, it, it, it looks too far to our left. It looks like it's not, or maybe it's just that the, 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 there's something about it where that head, it almost looks like somebody standing behind a headless figure to me. Um, huh. So I didn't I, have I, that I issue. Know. Yeah, I, I, that really jumped out at me, actually. I sort of was looking at it for like a, several minutes trying to figure out what is it that's bothering me about that? I get what you're saying. Yes, it is a great panel and it is very evocative, but that's just one thing about it that kind of breaks it for me a little bit. Anyway, the executioner and enchantress just sort of show up in a New York intersection. The cops come up to him. It's like, hey, well, you know, look, Mac, how you and your lady friend dress in public is your business. So long as you don't break the law. But when you start interfering with traffic around here, the executioner is like, you dare speak like this to me. And enchantress is like, quiet, you fool. He's a guardian of the law. It is necessary to obey him. Like, really? They decide that they need to follow the law in this location for whatever reason. (laughs) Seems out of character for them. Essentially, they want to be bad guys, but they realize they don't know human culture or practices. We we, we need some help. So then they happen to run into a uh, newspaper that talks about Zemo fleeing the country. They're like, hey, he could be our partners in crime. Then we cut to Captain America training. There's this neat sequence where he has hired a bunch of the best wrestlers they can find to all attack him at once. And he's like, are you sure these are the best guys you could find? Because this is going pretty easy for me. But then he's moping about Bucky once again. And then Rick Jones apparently found a Bucky uniform digging through one of Steve's boxes and puts it on. He's like, hey, look at me. Oh, why? How does Steve Rogers, who was frozen and then just picked out of the ocean, have a box with a Bucky uniform in it? I'm not quite sure, but one way or the other. Yes. Captain America sort of uncharacteristically freaks out at Rick for doing this. He's like, take it off. I never told you to wear it. Then he keeps on getting angrier at him. I'm not going to ever have a partner again because that's just too much responsibility. And I failed once and I'm not going to fail again. Then meanwhile, that brings back his idea of vengeance on Zemo. So we then cut to the South American jungle where Zemo is giving orders of a petty dictator. From this day on, I'm raising the taxes you must collect for me. Uh, which okay sure fine and then as he's in his treasure room we then see projections of the enchantress and the executioner coming to talk to zemo and offer a collaboration between them zemo thinks this is a really good idea and so we will be seeing more of them shortly we then conveniently see that Giant Man and Wasp happen to be leaving for some scientific expedition that they're doing. 
Thor has some things to head out for, so he heads out. And Iron Man, meanwhile, has been banished for a week. So Captain America and Rick Jones are the only ones left. So uh, they are taking a shortcut through the park after seeing off Giant Man and Wasp. And uh, there's this guy who's a very German-looking guy with a monocle uh, shows up. He's like, Captain America. No, sorry. what? That's not. That's more Russian. What is that? Anyway, one word. You really don't have to do a German accent here. No, no, no. Captain America, I must speak with you. It is a most important matter. And um, he is saying that he is the former second-in-command to Zemo, and he wants to make up for his past crimes of helping Zemo do what he did. Captain America gets the information out of him and then tosses him aside. Turns out that was actually the executioner in one of those magical masks that we have in the Marvel Universe. I think the executioner could have just shown up as the executioner and said, I think that would have been all the more convincing to go like, yes, I am a villain and I think you should go fight Zemo. I think anybody telling Cap where Zemo is, Cap would have said, I don't care why you're telling me this. You're telling me where Zemo is. That's good enough for me. But uh, they go to great lengths to do a bizarre subterfuge here. Meanwhile, Thor is on his way to doing whatever it was he was going to do. And then he gets a sort of summons. He gets sort of a siren call that he answers on a rooftop of a New York building. And I've got to say, on page 10, panel 2, that downward view on that mid-century modern rooftop patio, A, it looks fantastic. B, that's another example of something that looks like Steve Rude. Yeah, it does. Totally. So then we see the Enchantress in a really interesting outfit. She keeps her usual color scheme. She's got uh, sort of Asgardian-looking ribbons keeping her hair tied up, but she's wearing these very modern striped slacks that she's got on. So it's this this neat little mixture of modern fashion with with her Asgardian look that um, is, I think it would be hard to really come up with that and pull it off well. But Kirby does it fantastically. Oh, he's always great. Yeah. So the Enchantress more or less ensorcels him. She gives him this uh, vision that the other Avengers are all these horrible, destructive monsters. <laughs> yeah, we don't do panel of the week on this podcast like they do on Marvel by the Month. But this would definitely be my panel of the week. The picture of him imagining Iron Man, Giant Man, Captain America and Wasp as demons is just gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's really well done. So yeah, the the fever dream nightmare that uh, Thor is having that the Enchantress is giving him is really fantastic. So then when he comes out of this nightmare, this image is still firmly implanted in his head. And he goes off to try to stop the Avengers. Cut to the South American jungle. Captain America has somehow gotten a charter plane to just fly over the jungle and let him drop out with a parachute. He comes down and then then we've got the South American jungle subjects of Zemo. They've got some kind of modern machine guns that they're pointing directly at Captain America's shield and not at his completely exposed legs. I generally love Chickstone sinking on Kirby and was a big fan of his sinking on Kirby in both Fantastic Four and Thor this week. Uh, And as always on Thor, huge gap between the inking by Chickstone in the front of the book and the horrible inking by Coletta, which we did not dwell on in the back of Thor in Tales of Asgard. And I generally like the chickstoning here, it's only occasionally that I don't like chickstone on Kirby. And there's only one page in this issue I don't like. And it's this page. It's page number 13, 
where suddenly Chick Stone seems to have lost his brush and seems to be inking everything with pen, and we don't have any spotting of blacks, or just very, very little spotting of blacks on this page, and lots of sort of more Coletta-style scratchiness, and there's no real sense of weight or heaviness to it, but I feel like this will happen more going on. So I feel like as we go on and see more Chick Stone in the coming months, I feel like it's going to be more common for him to have pages that don't have heavy enough spotting of blacks and don't have enough solidity to them. But anyway, this one page stood out to me. Okay. Well, uh, we see Captain America use his shield in a way that I've never seen him use before or since. Rather than throwing it like a frisbee, he's kicking it from the broad center, and it's coming out as a big circle at people rather than coming at you blade, you know, edge first, which, uh, I mean, it looks cool, but it doesn't look like it would work. (laughs) So Captain America is caught in a big game trap, one of those pits that's covered up with stuff. So he falls down and he is trapped there. Back in New York City, Thor is looking for the Avengers to defeat them because he now thinks they're evil. He has apparently told Hank and Jan that they need to abandon their uh, scientific mission and come back immediately for something. And it turns out it's for the reason that Thor wants to attack them. So (laughs) Thor destroys the plane that they're in. Jan shrinks and Hank grows when this happens. So Jan shrinks so she can fly. Hank grows because the bigger he is, the less distance his legs will have to go to hit the ground. I'm like, I'm not sure that's how that <laughs> yeah. works. But I, I, don't, you know, you, I don't exactly buy that. You, you can shrink too. You know that, right? So then, uh, But he uh, doesn't get wings. He doesn't have wings to fly with, which yes. it's just endlessly bizarre that he gave her wings and he did not give himself any, which they... Do not attempt to explain in the MCU movies. They just hang a big lantern on it and go like, uh, why didn't you give me wings? Like, no reason. <laughs> just because I don't like you. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, that's actually one of my favorite lines in that movie. It's just, you know, oh, so I suppose you didn't have that wing technology when you gave me the suit, huh? He's like, oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, Tony Stark is spending his time not allowed to be with the Avengers, sitting there plugging in his chest device and smoking a cigarette while watching the news. Uh, but then he sees this stuff going on. He's like, OK, I know I'm suspended from the Avengers, but I mean, come on. And so he puts on his armor. He joins the fight against Thor. So then Enchantress uses her magic powers to look inside a magic ball of some sort, see what has happened to Captain America. She uses her magic to make the pit that Captain America is in start to crumble in on itself. But just like that old story about the donkey who fell in the hole and the farmer tries to bury him, uh, you know, just keeps on basically standing on top of all the stuff that falls in there and is eventually able to get himself up out of the hole. Now, why the destruction of Captain America would be such a big deal to the Enchantress and the Executioner, I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, I guess they're just trying to get in on this whole uh, Earth bad guy thing. But also, this just completely scotches the entire issue. <laughs> this is completely wrecks the entire issue to have this happen because it makes it clear that the Captain America storyline, they are watching out the window, Thor fight the Avengers, and then she looks in her crystal ball and sees that Captain America is stuck in the pit in South America. And then, as it will turn out, Captain America will grab onto Zemo's ship as Zemo's ship leaves and they will arrive as Thor is still fighting the Avengers. (laughs) Um, 
in New York. So it's like by having this one little moment where she looks in her crystal ball, it's made very clear like, oh no, we're not jumping back and forth between things at different time periods. We just have Captain America hanging onto the outside of Zemo's ship going hella fast from <laughs> South America to New York because seemingly mere moments later, Captain America arrives on Zemo's ship when we clearly saw that he was in South America earlier in this same fight. Well, that, that's right up there with when the teen brigade decided to drive from New Mexico to Washington, D.C. and, you know, gets there. No, this is so much faster than that. There <laughs> they at least had like a day or two to make it. This is insane. This is like clearly, clearly it takes mere moments with Captain America on the outside of the ship for Zemo to make it from South America to New York. Oh, by the way, I've noticed they're calling him Dr. Zemo throughout this issue. Don't, don't they usually call him Baron Zemo or is that just his son that they call Baron Zemo? No, he's usually barren. Yeah, that's what I thought too, but they call him Dr. Zemo throughout this issue. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. he probably has a doctorate in paste technology. We then see the magnets once again, and he is able to use those in a different way, the arm magnets, the shield magnets. You know I love the shield magnets. Yes, no, I think they're great. I think they should have kept them. Uh, but then he uses those to magnetize himself to the side of Zemo's ship so that he can follow Zemo back to America. So hopefully, friction of the wind and the coldness of the upper atmosphere is not going to be a problem. But as you pointed out, it won't be for long anyway. So it'll just be a few minutes. He can handle that. <laughs> so uh, meanwhile, the battle in New York is continuing to happen. Thor finally breaks out of it when uh, Iron Man uses his repulsor rays to somehow... Wait, is it repulsor rays? I must... Time it just right. Catch the sun's reflection at the perfect angle. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's something in the palm of his hand. He's able to uh, well, snap or out of it. Keep in mind, in the previous issue, they had made it clear that Iron Man had something in the palm of his hand specifically for dehypnotizing people, which he did in the previous issue, even though the Teen Brigade had not actually done anything wrong when they were hypnotized. But it seemed like they were doing that just to set up that he has a dehypnotizer in the palm of his hand. This issue, he actually needs it, doesn't use it. <laughs> he comes up with some other way of doing it. So meanwhile, the Enchantress and the Executioner both dressed up as a fashionable couple in New York in the 1960s are realizing that the plan is all falling apart. The Executioner is like basically like, why were we going through all this stuff? You know, we just beat them up. <laughs> that's that's what we need to do. But then they see Dr. Z Dr. Zemo, as they say, is approaching here in his ship. But then they now realize that Captain America was on top of the ship the whole time. He smashes his way through the windshield of the ship, battling Zemo. Oh, sorry. Then Zemo's ship somehow lands right on the rooftop where Enchantress and Executioner are. Uh, Executioner comes in and is trying to pull Captain America off of Zemo. Right. But then uh, Executioner is able to knock Captain America unconscious. Even after Executioner is like, Executioner and Enchantress are both like, well, why hasn't he killed Captain America yet? Well, here they just knock him out and then put him outside the plane. Yeah. <laughs> the exact same thing uh, that they were getting mad at Zemo for earlier. So anyway, they take Zemo's uh, unconscious body and take him in the plane and uh, try to make their escape. But then Thor uses one of his uh, hammers, kind of amorphous weird powers to create a space warp big enough to absorb Zemo's entire ship and the merciless beings within it. And um, Iron and then Man... he then... sends them on a warp. 
Is that Giant Man or Iron Man? Iron Man says, Thor, what did you do? Where is Zemo's ship going to end up? Thor says, none can say. A space warp can lead anywhere to a different city or a different universe. It's like, and oh, it's like, okay. Thor, that's called getting away. Like, that's what they were trying to, it's like, oh, they're trying to get away. I'm not going to let them get away. I'm going to send them somewhere and I have no idea where. Like, yes, that's getting away, Thor. They just got away. Yes. Um, so then meanwhile, uh, at the bottom of the last page here, the middle panel on the bottom, uh, you were talking about the eyes needing to look like they're, uh, you know, the same size and look in the same place. Uh, to me, at least, and this might be partially the colorist's fault, Thor looks very wall-eyed in that, in that panel to me. Yeah, it does. Anyway, so the Avengers all have decided to come back together and uh, not to fight each other anymore, and they can be stronger as a team. They never officially go like, okay, Iron Man, you're back on the team, your suspension's over. That's just sort of understood here. Oh, did they not? I thought they did at one point. Okay. Maybe not. Anyway, one way or the other, uh, this, I think, is a really good issue. I like this. I think that Baron Zemo, while he is around for his brief several issues, is a a nice minute. I mean, you know, anytime you can get an actual honest to God Nazi, uh, you know, you can't get much better for just a pure villainy than that. And, you know, him teaming up with these couple of Asgardians, it's a weird combination. But it really works, and you can sort of see what they're each offering each other, both the synergy and the bickering and infighting you get between them is uh, is nice. You get to see the Avengers fighting each other, as often happens, which is also nice. So yeah, it's um, not, not the most epic issue in Avengers history, but uh, I enjoyed it. No, I like this issue a lot. I think that Seamus a great villain. It's great to have Enchantress and Executioner back. I think they're great villains, uh, and... There, it was clever to combine them all. It's just so nice to see Asgard. It's so nice to see Odin. It's been so long since we've had Odin or Asgard show up in Thor's own book. And to and Kirby misses it. Kirby gets to draw the hell out of it. And, you know, I think one certain argument that Stan Lee was really putting these books and Kirby wasn't can be made in just that why would Kirby deny himself Odin so often in the Thor books, in the Thor pages? Why would Kirby be sentencing himself to Grey Gargoyle if he had a truly free and open hand in writing these books? And it is, you can just feel Kirby's relief getting to draw all this wonderful stuff again here. I think that, you know, certainly the plotting in this issue is very awkward. It's been a whole month full of awkward plotting, and you could not have anything more awkward than Zemo's ship leaving South America in one panel and showing up in New York the next panel in the middle of a sequence where clearly there was no break in the sequence. And uh, especially with Captain America on the outside of the ship the entire time, <laughs> very awkwardly plotted, but I'm willing to forget that. And it's a tremendously fun issue. Basically in my head canon, the ship can teleport. So I'm like, okay, this is, this is Zemo's teleportation ship and Captain America's on the outside of it. And then it teleports to New York. There you go. Head cannon solve the issue. Yes. And uh, I also really love Executioner and Enchantress dressed up as a fashionable New York couple. <laughs> yes, it's great. <laughs> it really it really is really good. Uh, Kirby pulled that off nicely. Um, so shall we wrap this up? Yes, let's wrap this up. So okay. a perfectly fine month of Marvel Comics. It's great to have Craven the Hunter introduced. Certainly the biggest scare we got this month was Dicko not nicking himself like a, a, a terrifying glimpse of what could have the direction Marvel could have gone in. but. Dicko comes to his senses and goes back to taking himself, I think, in every book for the rest of the 60s. And, woo, that was a close one. (laughs) 
Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, so we had a, a good issue of Spider-Man, good issue of The Avengers, fine issue of Fantastic Four, and five other issues. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's go ahead and say uh, goodbye to everybody and uh, wrap this up. So thank you, everybody, for listening once again. Uh, take care. Stay safe out there. Okay. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.